last summer, like all the Torontonians, my family and I visited Banff. I've heard much about it. I've seen photos and uh, you know images of Banff, but I've never been there. It just seemed to be a dreamy place. You know, the Silver Tip Mountain, the Emerald Lake. I it was always on my bucket list. So as soon as the restriction was lifted, we booked our tickets and went to Banff. And I remember the drive to Banff from the city of Calgary. You know, we drive along this highway, you can see the mountain skyline from afar. You know, it was quite vague. But then as you drive closer and closer, it becomes clearer and greater. And then all of a sudden, you are smacked in the face by beauty. The mountains are all around you, you can see the trees, you can see the river flowing through the rocks. It was as beautiful as I could, I could imagine. Um, you know, I was so in awe with the beauty. My mother in law teased me and said, like, you know, James, you look like you cry. And honestly, I probably could. You know, after being cooped up in lockdown for so long, you know, being confronted with such beauty all of a sudden took away my every breath. And this feeling of being stunned by something so majestic and grand is a mere glimpse of what it would be like to see our Creator one day face to face. And as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ on Christmas, I want to invite you today to behold our Lord Jesus in awe and reverence. Not merely see Him as a meek and helpless babe, which is a typical Christmas trope for Lord Jesus, but to behold Him as the promised King who came to redeem humanity from the bondage of sin by making himself the sacrificial lamb for us. So from our text today in Matthew 2, I want to show you that the only appropriate response to the calling of our King is to submit ourselves to his authority, to worship in his presence, and to present him your best offering. So let's begin our text. Matthew 2 starts with the context of our story. It tells us in verse 1 that Jesus was born in the Bethlehem of Judea, which is a small town maybe five miles south of Jerusalem. And we first learn about a town in the Old Testament where Ruth took refuge and later married Boaz in that town. It is also the town where Ruth's grand the great grandson David was anointed by prophet Samuel as the king of Israel. So this city has been referred to as the city of David uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And now in our story, Bethlehem of Judea is once again the birthplace of another king, Jesus. And we are then introduced to the character of Herod, and he is referred to as the king who rules over Israel at this time. But you see, Herod was not really a king, but in reality, you know, he is a half Jew, and he was appointed as the king, quote unquote king, by Caesar because he was a shrewd politician and who gained Rome's favor by collecting insurmountable amount of tax from the Jews. And he is very good at quoting uprisings. So he was a violent and cruel man, and he gained power through that. So he was, in effect, a puppet of the Roman government who ruled over Israel for the good of Rome and, of course, for his own prosperity. So, after setting the context of story, 
Behold, look, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And we don't know the name of the wise men or the number. No, the Bible doesn't say it's three wise men. So parents, future parents, don't perpetuate the question names. <laughs> so who are these wise men? You know, they're the ancient astrologists who possess uh, supernatural knowledge and the ability to interpret dreams. So in some translations, they're also called Magi's. So they're likely from uh, Persia or Arabia, where Queen of Sheba was from, you know, Queen of Sheba from the days of Solomon. And they are highly esteemed men in the king's court. You know, they're people who are kind of a big deal. Right? That's why Herod will receive them, and that's how they can carry with them such expensive gifts. And they ask Herod, where is he who has been born king of Jews? For we saw the stars when they rose and come to worship him. Oh, what a great question, guys. You know, behold, the king is here. Now let's find him and worship him. But how does a wise man from the east know how to they need to come here and see the king. And what's with the star? So the reference to the star can be traced all the way back to the time of Exodus, when Prophet Balaam was ordered by King of Balak, uh, was ordered by King of Balaam to curse the Israelites, because Balaam was an enemy of the Israelites. But Balak, the prophet, entered the intercession of God, blessed Israel instead of cursing them. So in his oracle, recorded in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, Balak prophesied that a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So the prophecy says, a star will come out of Jacob, which is another term for Israel, and a scepter, which symbolizes a king, will rise out of Israel. So the prophecy of a star that signifies the coming of the king begins as early as the first generation of Israelites. And it, but interestingly, in our story, it's not the Israelites who came seeking the king, but those from the east, the Gentiles. And when the king comes, see, it doesn't matter if you're Jews or Gentiles, if you bow before the king, if you seek him, the, the king will be for you. And the scripture speaks of this in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 2. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. When the king, Jesus, comes, the radiance of his glory will pierce through the darkness. Those who seek the king will see the sign, and they will come and worship him as the king of kings and the lord of lords. For our God is not just a God of Israel, but that he is a God of nations. And his desire has always been for the whole world, for all the nations to know him and to worship him. But first, to worship Jesus as your king would mean that you to his authority. And there must be no other kings in your life, including yourself. You must deny yourself as a master of your own life, and you must submit to Jesus. And your life must be contrary.
there are some among you who would rather deny the authority of Jesus because you want to be the king in your own life. And you will ignore and even defame Jesus' calling of you today. And that's what Herod did in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Not rejoice, not glad. He was troubled over the news that the Messiah is here. And trouble might be a bit of an understatement. He was deeply disturbed, in turmoil, and threatened. You know, this man came to power by violence and politicking. He does not want another king. He wants to be the king. You know, Herod is like a tenant in the parable of the tenants of the vineyard that Jesus taught in Mark 12. You know, who refused to give the landlord back the vineyard that belongs to the landlord. That he would even kill the servants of the vineyard and even the son of the landlord. Herod was given the kingdom by Rome, but he fails to see that the nation of Israel, or all the nations for that fact, belongs to God. So when God sent Jesus to claim his throne, Herod felt threatened to the court. So much so that he would attempt to kill the Messiah as a baby. So even though we know the throne that Jesus sits on is far greater than Herod's, the whole earth is Jesus' footstool. So it's kind of funny that he thinks Jesus would even care to take his But here's Herod. Herod assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquire them where Christ was to be born. And the concept, see, the concept of Christ the Messiah is not foreign to Herod. After all, all Israelites were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. But of course, Herod has no idea where, what the scripture says about where the king would, would be born. So he had to ask the chief priests and scribes who were religious leaders and the lawyers at the time. And they responded to um, to, to Herod by quoting what prophet Micah wrote in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. For you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The Messiah is born in Bethlehem of Ephrathah, from the tribe of Judah. It is a small and insignificant town in many ways, except it's the hometown of King David. And it is a town where the future king so Matthew is very intentional in pointing out the kingly lineage of Jesus Christ. And his birth is the fulfillment of the prophecy written ages ago. So I didn't notice this before uh, until this time. But it is kind of shocking to find out that the chief priests and scribes knew where the Messiah was born. And they did nothing. They completely neglected searching for, for the king until the foreigners came looking for, for Jesus. And then they're like, oh yeah, Messiah, um, right over there, south of uh, here, you know, that small town, Bethlehem, I guess. So I mean, they are the chief priests, are the scribes of the people. And they of all people should know the importance of the Messiah. And they should probably care a little bit more about finding him. 
But if you heard Nanshan, the first glance makes you go like, huh, what is going on in, in Israel? And in verse 7 to 8, Herod's response was just outrightly evil. On the surface, he pretends to be kind towards the wise men, and he is so invested in knowing where Messiah was born. So he sent them, and he wants to be informed, so that he too may go and worship him. So you see, Herod knows what's to be expected of him. He knows that the Messiah is the true king, and he is the hope of Israel and all the nations. But Herod's true intention was only to kill the Messiah as a baby, so that he alone can remain as the king. Behold, the king is here, and his presence calls upon all nations to worship him. And to worship him, there has to be first a posture of a submission to God's authority as a king. In fact, worshiping anything requires submission to its, to its authority, if you think about it. And that includes idols. But typically, you know, submission is not a response when a child is born. In fact, last week, you know, as you heard from prayers, we had two lovely babies born from our GFC family. You know, we rejoice with our parents and we admire what a beautiful creation that God has given us. But we won't worship the baby. But when Jesus was born, it's not a just typical ooh and ah. He is coming with the full authority of God. And he commands all the legions of army in heaven that he is the Lord of all creation. Yes. He will serve, he will live as a servant king who suffers and pays for the debt, for the debt that we owe because of our sin. And that he will suffer crucifixion on the cross. But do not be mistaken. When the Messiah was born, everything was changed. Jesus will be worshipped as a king even as a baby. Herod is an evil man, but not a stupid man. He knows that he must bow before Jesus like everyone else, and that's why he was threatened. And the chief priests and scribes didn't seem to care much about it, but very soon, they will also be threatened by Jesus, and they were the ones eventually pardoned Jesus' crucifixion. So friends, let me ask you today, have you submitted to the authority of Jesus as your king? Or will you defy him and want to be the king of your own life? Christians, have you made it your daily duty to submit to our king and all his teaching? And when was the last time that you wanted to act out in sin, but you felt the Holy Spirit restraining you by reminding you of the teaching of Jesus? Submission is hard. That's not just for the wise. A submission to the authority of Jesus is a universal experience to all who claim Jesus as their Lord. Because there's no worship if there is no submission. You know, I know we have many excuses to justify our sin. You know, they did this first to me. What about so and so? Or, you know, that's just who I am. 
उसको गांव में भी चुकी नो इफ समर कम्बलेशन अगेंस्ट यू प्रे फॉर देम स्पीक टू देम डायरेक्टली लाइक वी मस्ट नॉट सेनिंग आवर एंगर एंड बिटरनेस फॉर द एंगर ऑफ मैन डज नॉट प्रोड्यूस द राइचियसनेस ऑफ गॉड सेस जेम्स 1 वर्स 20 अदर्स मिस्टेक्स आर नॉट योर रीजंस टू सिन एंड व्हाट अबाउट समवन एल्स यू नो व्हाट अबाउट देयर सिन He's more righteous and just than all of us. He will render to each one according to his works. Romans chapter two verse six writes. Another common thing I hear often is, you know, that's why I'm I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. I'm in it for one, two, three, four, five. The <laughs> friends, your identity is not sinner anymore. But if you proclaim Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Jesus. 
repent of all our sins and swear our allegiance to our kings. And that means you will need to live as a citizen of the new kingdom of Jesus and abide in all his words. So friends, who are you in the story? Are you the Herod who actively opposed the kingship of Jesus? Or are you the religious leaders who knows the religion outwardly but inwardly you have not submitted to the authority of Jesus? Or are you the wise men that you saw Jesus and that you came to worship him as your king because you have given your life, submitted them to the authority of Jesus? And if you're the wise men, let us worship our king in his presence. And that's our second point. Worship him. Verse 9 continues the story. After hearing the king of where the Messiah is to be born, they went on their way. And behold, the star that, had, that they had seen before, it rose before them, and it rested on the house or the place where the child was born. So the star that first indicated to them where the child to be born reappears, and it led them to Bethlehem, to the place where the child is. And the reappearance of the star is like a confirmation that they are on the right track. It's like the signs on the trail that assures us that we are not lost. But their sign is from nature. It is supernatural. And the wise men responded with rejoice exceedingly with great joy, according to verse 10. Now friends, again, it's very possible to interplay interplay the great amount of joy displayed here. After all, you know, we know the ending of the story. We know Christ came and fully accomplished his purpose on earth. But for the wise men, who devoted their lives to studying the truth of the world, who received the prophecy from generations of other wise men, now they are finally about to face the Messiah, the King, who is the fulfillment of all the ancient prophecies from the beginning of mankind. From the moment that Adam and Eve bit into the forbidden fruit, to the killings between siblings and rape within the families, mankind has been groaning and waiting for the salvation from the seed of Eve, who will crush the head of the serpent. Think about the years of slavery, the rebelliousness against God, and the great evil and the wickedness against another. The Israelites has also been waiting for the promised king who will finally restore them to the nation that resembles God's people and his treasured possession. And think about your own life. You know, your sin and nailed Jesus on the cross. Stubbornness of your sinful tendencies that becomes almost like a reactionary response in situations. Friends, think of the vile words that you spoke out against one another, against image bearers this week, or the murmuring of bitterness that is brewing in your heart, whether it's towards your family, your co-workers, or your brothers and sisters. Friends, think of all you have viewed and watched this past week. Are they true? Are they honorable? Are they just? Are they pure? Are they lovely? Are they commendable? Can you share with us 
friends, don't move on too quickly from your sin. Otherwise, you will have no need for a savior. If you do not first weep and mourn over your sin, there will be no celebration of the king who came to save you and paid a great price for your sin. The good news of Jesus is only good to those who are ready to deny themselves as their king, but to submit to the only righteous king and perfect king, Jesus. And if that is you, then let us worship and celebrate as he is our king and he is here with us. And let's do so with exceedingly great joy because his coming not only fulfills all the ancient prophecies and promises, but that he is the answer to our sin and to the evil of this world. Let our hearts be filled with a wonder and gratitude to the king, like the wise men did in verse 11. Going to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Friends, the king has come. Will you submit to his authority? Will you worship at his feet? And that moves us to our last point. Present to Jesus our best offering. As the wise men entered the, enter the room and worshiped Jesus, they opened their treasure and offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, I remember seeing a meme that says, if we were to be wise women, they would bring fresh diaper, casseroles, for the mother um, and I admit it's kind of funny, but it kind of shows the peculiarity of the gifts offered here. So why gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Some commentator says uh, gold represents the royalty of Jesus as a king, and frankincense, um, so it's a type of incense that people use to burn during worship. So it represents the divinity of Jesus, and myrrh is used for burial. So it symbolizes the humanity of Jesus and foreshadows his passion. So you, know, you could say that maybe you're reading a bit too much. But an undeniable fact is that these are valuable and precious gifts, suitable for a king. And in fact, it is the fulfillment of several Old Testament passages. Psalm chapter 72, verse 10 to 12 writes, May the king of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May the kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. So Sheba and Seba here refer to the Arabian regions in ancient times. And they, the kings from, from this area, will come bearing gifts. And they will fall down before Jesus or before the king worship him, to serve him. Another passage in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, rests this. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and they shall bring good news, the praise of the Lord. See, when the king comes, the nations will come and worship him. They will bow and submit him, and they will praise him, and they will bring with them their best offering, suitable for a king. So friends, as we submit ourselves to 
the authority of Jesus, as we bow before Jesus to worship him, what is your best offering that God desires from you? First, let's cross off what your offering is not. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 20, God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah to his people. What you use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba, or sweet cane from a distant land. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, and your sacrifices pleasing to me, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. So why is God rejecting the frankincense that comes from Sheba in this text? Why does God not accept Israelites' burnt offerings and find their sacrifices displeasing? The answer lies in the first prior. So Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 19 says this, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster among the people, the fruit of their, their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected. So God rejects their offerings because they have not paid attention to the word of God. And they rejected God's law and his rule. Friends, isn't this not any different than what we have seen in text so far? See, there is no sacrifices in the offering that you can bring to peace God if you do not first submit to his authority. If your posture of uh, towards God is not obedience, and you have no desire to know God's word and to abide in it, then nothing you bring before God can please Him. You know, for a while I really liked watching the monster movies, and often in those movies, the main characters, who is you know the monster boss, after committing crimes after crimes, they would go to church and make donations to the priest or the father. Friends, this is not how Christianity works. Our God is not a corrupt official who would look, overlook your willful transgression by taking bribes from you. God cannot be bribed or manipulated by your sacrifices or offerings. He does not need it. I mean, why would he? He made you, he gave you all that you have. Everything belongs to the Lord anyways. And that goes for your religious activity too. You know, God doesn't need you to serve in any ministry if your heart's allegiance is not to the king. You know, John Tabacus might need more volunteers in children's ministries, but our God doesn't. Now, what kind of offerings is our God desire? Romans chapter 2, verse 1 says, I appeal to you, brothers, Beautiful brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, to God, which is your spiritual worship. The sacrifice and offerings that we bring as believers is yourself. Make yourself, your body, the living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and that is your spiritual worship. And friends, you know, I just want to make a note here. 
the sacrifice and offering you know, we refer to in this passage is not for the purpose of gaining favor or gaining forgiveness from God. That is already accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. But the kind of sacrifice that we offer, we present before our King as Christians, is because of the mercy of God that was poured out on us as Jesus' blood cleansed us from our sin and as Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. It is the result of God's saving work in your life as you submit to Jesus as your King. You know, it is an offering of gratitude and a dedication to the one who saved you with his life. So present your body as living sacrifice. And the body here does not just mean your physical bodies, you know, it's, you know your arms, your legs, and it's a plural bodies. It entails your whole being, your heart and your mind, and your possessions, your wealth, you know, what you do in every moment of your life, the Lord desires you to use that as a living sacrifice. Everything you are, everything you have, everything you do is from God. Your time, your talents, your wealth, you are the living sacrifice. And what does it need to be like? It needs to be holy and acceptable. And holiness is not an option for Christians. If there is no such thing as you know, holy Christians and carnal Christians, but that we are all called to be holy because our God is holy. And it is all to be possible to be holy because the blood of the Holy Son has poured, been poured out on you, that His holiness and righteousness has been imparted so that holiness is not just a ritual. It is a complete rejection of sin and a total commitment to a life of obedience to the will of God. And God wants everything of you to be obedient to the will of God. And you are living sacrifice.
Are you still devoting time to read the word and commune with God in prayer in this busy season? And you know, I, like, I will confess, my devotion life can be the first to be abandoned whenever the life gets busy. But if we're praying less, that we're consuming God's word less in this season, then what are we even celebrating? And how are you using your time and your talents? Are you faithful in managing the wealth that God has given you? You know, we all want to be hashtag blessed. But the blessings of God is meant to be shared, especially with those who are in need. Are you generous? Are you sacrificial in giving your time, your gifts, your wealth to those in need? You know, I've, I've, you know, I've known several men from our church who are known to be a bit frugal. You know, they're happy to spend minimally on themselves, and their wardrobe these days are mostly from Costco or old shirts from um, free conferences. Free shirts from conferences. But they're not stingy and frugal with others. But they're generous in sharing their home and sharing their meals with outsiders. For those who were able to come out to Christmas dinner last night, you know, that to me is a perfect image of what a church should be. You know, some people came early to set up the space and decorations, or they stayed behind to clean up and tear down to put up the chairs that you're sitting on right now. And then many prepared a feast of food for all to share, including that 30 pound of roast beef. That was amazing. We have singing, and we worship, and we heard people reading the scripture in different languages. Guys, you know, that is a picture of heaven, of the eternity to come. And it just again reminds me of you know, the, the health and prosperity of this church does not depend on programs, does not depend on structures, it doesn't even depend on the preacher here, but it depends on God. It depends on you all who submitted your life to Jesus Christ. And it depends on the work of the Holy Spirit to move our hearts in submission to the authority of Jesus, who is our King. It depends on the Holy Spirit who can, who can give us the joy and the zeal in our worship. And it depends on the Holy Spirit to help us to believe and then to understand and then to do the words. Jesus. We need God to help us and that he can help us to make ourselves a holy and living sacrifice that's pleasing to God. You know, just like the church last night uh, was a glimpse of what the heavens will be like one day. And though we are imperfect, we're far from nature, but let us church, commit ourselves to the authority of Jesus as our King, and let us worship in His presence, both on Sunday as a congregation and throughout the whole week, and let us present to God, to our King, with our best offerings. May your life, your family, and our church 